coming up in one minute on the Jack and Around podcast. What we can do is speak an economic language and separate it and say, all of that that I just described is a reason we ought to protect this thing and make sure it's supported. But did you know that over 100,000 people go to work every day in this industry and create $400 million to our tax base? Wouldn't you like to protect that too? And here's how we do that. Uh, RIAA, which is the agency that does a tremendous amount to fight back against piracy and they hand out gold records to people. Mm -hmm, right. So they do these studies every year that point out the 50 contributions of 50 states to the music industry as a whole in the United States. And we were the only state that's able to provide our own data to that study. But those shuttered venue operators grants are rolling in now in the millions. And Texas has gotten 600 plus million dollars of that those funds for, for venues, for theaters. Look at you, man. Getting all, getting all astute politically. I love it. Well, I just think- It's it, pretty amazing that the, the learning curve that you had to get on. It was a big learning curve. I appreciate you saying that because it was a very big learning curve. I looked at it simply from- This is the Jack and Around podcast, hosted by two-time Academy of Country Music Award winner, Jack Ingram. And now, here's Jack. The Jack and Around podcast is brought to you by Lone Star Dry Goods. A collection of handcrafted quality goods the truly unique Americana vibe. Visit the world headquarters in the heart of downtown Abilene, Texas and Willow Park, Texas in Fort Worth. Visit LoneStarDryGoods.com for more information. Welcome to the Jacking Around podcast, available on your favorite audio platforms and in video on YouTube. For links and info, visit JackingAroundPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 11 with guest Brendan Anthony. No, Brendan's bio is in the show notes. Also located jackaroundpodcast.com. Part two premieres next Wednesday, September 22nd. Here's episode 11, part one with Jack Ingram and Brendan Anthony. Who are you calling? I actually called for a cop. Brad. I'll call you later. I'm Hi, Brad. How you doing? Brendan Anthony sends his love. We did this funny thing in Nashville at Americana a couple of years ago, and we did a Houston-centric panel. I even gave a speech on it at the awards or whatever. Right. And we put Brad on the panel, and we had some guys from Houston, like Edwin was on there too. He told me about that. Dude, he was so red. So it got down to Brad, and we're like, well, tell us what you think about, you know, what's so special about Texas music and Houston. And Brad was like, I couldn't wait to get out of Houston, man. That place sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so he told me that, I guess, Brendan, he probably fucked me. Oh, of course not. I thought it was, <laughs> he goes, I thought it was hysterical. He goes, <laughs> I, I went up there and I was like, I had nothing to add. He's a trip, man. He's really smart. No shit. I just, uh, I just cracked up. It's like, you're in a bad spot, man. Everyone on this panel is from Houston. So, uh, fire away. <laughs> what, what did he say he didn't like about Houston? He just didn't like it. Like it wasn't his thing. He wanted to be in Nashville. He wanted to be with the Borchettas and he wanted to be, you know, playing in the bigs as far as he con was concerned. And yeah, well, you got to go do that to do it, I guess. You do. I mean, you got to. I mean, if that's what you want, if that's your thing, like you can't hang around. And I remember eat. somebody got in trouble. Who was it that pissed off at? At Brad? Great. No. Somebody else who went and had a number one record. And was like, I really love the fact that I got to play in the minor leagues for a long time, and now I'm. Oh yeah, yeah. And what I think he meant is, a, I know exactly what he is a meant. meaning I took. Like I understood that, you know, if you want to go play the radio, if you want to go play every county fair, and you want to go be on those stages, you got to go. I understood what he Especially meant. Especially since I had done the same thing, and I, the only thing I didn't ever say was 
that. Yeah, I mean, but I knew what I was. I knew exactly. what I was like, yeah, man. I think that what they would say in Nashville is like, you played a regional, a really strong regional market for a long time. You're ready to play with this, and you yeah. can push back and say, look, I feel like I'm every bit as professional as anybody up there, but I need your help. I need all this infrastructure. I would. I don't know if I'd call it the minor leagues, but I mean, you're not playing with every well, big, not, yeah, tall radio person in the world, and and only a few people have really made it a national audience and kept it and kept it from well without going to play ball in nashville yeah i don't like, i don't know if you can cody johnson cody they, did yeah but they spend look where but they still they still do the nashville thing the tiding with their will they do great work they work yeah. their tails off how he works really hard you can't really do it without it how he works really hard just ask him <laughs> he'll tell you <laughs> He'll let you know. You know, but I tell you what, knowing Howie as long as I have since I was a teenager, if you'd asked me when I was 20 years old, where's Howie going to be in 20 years, I, I wouldn't have told you doing exactly what he's doing today. No way. I just Probably said, the best bar manager in Brazos Valley. I bet he'd be still be at the tap. That's yeah, what I, sure. I mean, because he would have been really good at it, made a lot of money. I remember him hanging out behind the bar when we played those gigs. Yeah. Little pretty boy. Howie. And John. John Whittington. How's he doing? He seems good. He's got his whole business figured out, as far as I can tell. He's still at the tap, right? He's at the tap. Is he an owner? Oh, yeah. He bought it from Seaback in, well, it must have been 20 years ago. Because Seaback member owned all those bars, and then they had that big lawsuit thing, and he kind of got out. What about the dude who, uh, Jack? Jack McGregor. Yeah. Like what's, Harry's. What's he up to? As far as I know, he's still there. Still rocking and rolling. Still there, he, man. Yeah. As far as I know, I talked to him about a year ago. That was the last time I really, and he was. I hadn't about played there in a long time. At Harry's. At Harry's. We're on College Station in general. Have you not? I haven't. I don't know. Where why. would you play if you went back? Um, I guess that's why I hadn't been playing there. Wolfpin or something at an event? Maybe an event. Yeah. I played downtown in, in Bryan. Stafford. I remember those days at Stafford. Well, I got a good story about that because that really opened a bunch of doors for me playing with just jumping on with you that one night like in 95 or something i mean stafford was huge for me that was <laughs> a fun that was a fun venue i used to love it and sneak out the back door to the alley sneak out the back one time we left a uh my buddy my buddy who was in college there hey man three's company too. tweedle d <laughs> Uh, we left a box. My buddy, Corey King, was on the road with me for like a month. And he left a box full of T-shirts and all the money in in one of those T-shirt boxes mm -hmm. in the alley or whatever. It wasn't even an alley. Just went out to it was the a street. street. Yeah, it was a street. Left it there. And uh, some homeless dude took it to the police. And Returned. there was like five grand in there or something. I mean, uh, there's at, your one. At that time, it was, <laughs> it was a big one. <laughs> there's your one. You got it. <laughs> No kidding. So Brennan Anthony's with us here today. The uh, Texas Music Office. What, what's your official title? I'm the director of the Texas Music Office and the comma in the office of the governor. It's a very long. You know, what's funny, man. Every time I see the governor talk, it seems like y'all have been in the same room. <laughs> Is that right? Like <laughs> he's either starting to talk like you or you're starting to talk like him. Uh, I guess maybe you tailor up your remarks based on your uh, audience. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it's vice versa. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> do you enjoy it? Yeah, I really do. It's a really uh, interesting place to work. Uh, it's a challenging place to work. But yeah. So what What exactly, for people that don't know what that is, 
What exactly is your job entail? Well, you know, what's great, I think, is that it entails a lot more today than it did five or six years ago. So we've really grown it. Uh, it's a 30-year-old office, though. And that, oh, it is. Yeah. So that office is ostensibly there per its legislative mandate right. to inform people about the music industry. Pretty broad mandate. But what we've done with that is we've built on top of that Texas music industry database, which is a way for people to connect. It used to be published in a book that people would get. It was like a white pages for the Texas music industry. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess I got that when I first started playing. Yeah. So that was a thing you could pull that out and just highlight like, well, I need to talk to this booking agent here, this radio person there. And they kept it up to date annually. So that was a really big service they did for a long mm -hmm. time. You know, with the advent of search engines, uh, and everything, our whole world going digital, uh, that TMID went digital as well. So we kept that uh, resource together. We just made it more efficient. We've, we've built that so it's a lot easier to search. Was that, did that used to just be the job, basically, was keeping that up to date and kind of... Yeah, I think, I mean, not to speak for my predecessor, but I think he sort of regarded the job as, you know, uh, or his role as sort of being a figurehead for the music industry, speaking for it, uh, and then operating that resource, which prior to the office coming around just didn't exist. Right. So that was that was in and of itself, and that day was a huge service. Uh, and then, of course, he did a lot of ancillary things with artists. But we've grown the agency to become sort of a, a real statewide agency that can speak to the economic impact of the music industry in Texas, mm -hmm. all genres, anyone who participates at a professional level. And then we've taken it further. So we've made elected uh, leaders aware of that impact. So they know it's worth advocating for right. statewide and federally. Right. And then we've gone out and advocated for it federally. So we've we've established these really tight relationships with trade organizations that work nationally. Uh, Such as? RIAA, uh, NSAI, uh, the Grammy chapter, the Recording Academy, NARIS, and, uh, and many, many others, Sound Exchange, um, all the PROs. All of these people do work in D.C. on behalf of the music industry at large. Mm -hmm. But we've positioned the music office to have a very powerful voice. You know, what a lot of people don't know who just work in the industry and kind of keep their heads down doing their job is the Texas delegation in D.C. is the largest delegation in Congress. And we have some very powerful people like Senator Cornyn and Senator Williams who sit at choke points where policy actually gets made, Senate mm -hmm. Judiciary Committee, et cetera. Um, and what we've done is position Governor Abbott to understand the impact of the industry so well that he can call those people and say, I'm not trying to influence your vote, but did you know that when you vote on Music Modernization Act, it's going to have a real impact on small business in Texas? Right. Uh, in fact, uh, Senator Cornyn, when he was voicing his support for music modernization, which if you don't know is landmark copyright reform for mm -hmm. creators of intellectual property, he cited our statistics as his reason why he was going to vote for. Really? Uh, yeah, and really pushed that through Senate Judiciary. So. That's one example. We've pushed back against Department of Justice and their overreach into songwriting world. Right. Uh, there was going to be a 100% licensing law passed by DOJ, which would really have changed the way you write with people from other PROs. What would that, what would that mean? What do you mean? So if you've got a higher rate as a songwriter and your friend from ASCAP wrote you know, a third of your song and he's got a lower rate, the DSPs or digital service providers like Spotify or Apple or Amazon could have gone to him or her and said, we'd like to use this whole song but we'd like to use your rate because it cost us less money. So at that point, you would have been taken by the um, DSPs and you would have gotten a lower rate for your song. Because they, because they uh, so negotiated a better deal with, the, with one of the riders? Correct, who's got a lower rate per them. So that doesn't work. 
right? So that no. means that every time you would have gone into a writing room with someone from a PRO, you would have had in the back of your mind, well, I might need a note from my lawyer saying, we're going to use my writer, we don't write. Right. That's not how we write songs. That's right. That's not, that's not a good place to start. Right. So Governor Abbott, at our request, wrote a Especially letter. Especially when we write them in the middle of the night. Exactly right. <laughs> we, yeah, it's the last thing on our mind, right? We don't want to think about that stuff. So right. we had Governor Abbott write a letter to Loretta Lynch, who was a ta- acting attorney general at the time. Uh, saying that we think this is unjust, this is bad for creators of intellectual property in our state. And it was Acting Attorney general. general was named? Loretta Lynch at that time. Loretta Lynch. Mm-hmm. I thought you said Loretta Lynn. I was like, what? <laughs> what? We might have had an easier time with her. Uh, no, they were they were working really hard to make sure that DSPs got a fair shake mm-hmm. uh, uh, federally. And while we want that to be the case, we also don't want that to be the case at the expense of people who create things in our state. Yeah, where does that go with like... Um, where does where does all that stand as far as like Spotify when they play like is, is it still like they have to play my song like a thousand times before I make a penny? Uh, more than that, yeah, more than that. But the thing is that most of us have to to realize is that once you reach a certain level of involvement with major labels, they tend to negotiate better deals with DSPs like Spotify. Well, the major labels aren't worried about the publishing necessarily. They, they aren't as worried about that because typically they don't control that. They're worried about that. the master. Yeah, they're worried about the master. And recording. that's a pretty good rate. That is a good rate if they negotiate it. So Spotify would look at an artist like Adele, for example, or Katy Perry, because I know these people are often used as an example of, well, Spotify does pay out. Well, of course it pays out to people like that. Those are flagship artists they need on their platform to be considered a viable platform. Right. Okay. They don't necessarily need me. Right. right. I've written, let's use that song we wrote together in the middle of the night. Right. Times like these as an example. They don't need me to be a successful platform. So, so you have no leverage. I have absolutely zero leverage. And it doesn't, that's interesting, man. I wonder what, wonder how they are able to pick and choose. I guess it's just a negotiating, just like any business, but still you'd think it would be more of like. Man, some entities have leverage and some don't. Mm-hmm. It's like that in any industry you work in. But in the songwriting world, uh, in the artist world, the people with the most leverage are the people who are represented by major labels who control a lion's share of the eyeballs or ears on a listening platform like Spotify. Yeah, but as, a, as an artist on that label, you know, Big Machine negotiated a great deal because they, they had the leverage when they had Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. But they own all the masters. That's right. And so that's why Taylor recut hers. Really didn't <laughs> help me any. Yeah, because it's per artist. I think Spotify's less interested in artists that aren't bringing the massive number of years that others are. Right. And again, like I, I don't feel like any work we've done should be an attempt to diminish Spotify's market share. That's not. That's not my concern. I think now because they're the preeminent listening platform, they should be kept strong. It's in our industry's best interest to keep a platform like that strong. Yeah. But we should work as hard as possible as tech moves ultimately faster every day than legislation does. We should work to keep legislation at pace at best with what they're at the advent of new tech. that Which is hard. It's extremely hard. It's always been the case. Tech moves faster than legislation. Legislation attempts doesn't always succeed, but sometimes it does to make things fair for people who create. And we should always keep the the gas pedal down when we're trying to affect legislation that does that, keeps things a little bit more fair. That's a tough job. Because it is, yeah. Anytime you're dealing with artists and creative types, they're always willing to take, you know, let the business side of it take a back seat. Not always, but- You'd like the business to work or you'd like to think it's working on your behalf. And it doesn't always. 
Right. And I really um, commend people like Lee Thomas Miller who go up to Congress and say, look, I should be writing songs right now. That should pay my bills and put my kids through college. The reason it doesn't is these reasons. This legislation we're here to support today should make that more easily attainable. Yeah. You know, what can you do to help us? Yeah. I heard a, um, one of those guys, I can't remember who, basically went up to, went to D.C. and said, was meeting with a senator. He goes, what's your favorite song of mine or whatever it was? And it was, you know, he said, oh, I danced to your song at my daughter's wedding. Yeah. And he's like, well, what if I didn't, what if I couldn't make a living writing songs? You would never hear that song. You wouldn't have danced with your daughter. Mm -hmm. And that, that to me is the best, best I've ever heard it put is like all the things that we take for granted or that people that make the laws take for granted about music and how strong it is in our culture. Uh, you got to put it in their, in their lap somehow to go like, this you've, is why it's important. You've got to change the conversation for them into a conversation they'll understand. You can't expect that you speaking your language is going to be a language that they understand. Right. And so that's why these trade organizations are so valuable because they kick the door open and they provide the language in these laws that get written or don't. But when an artist comes and talks about why it actually affects them personally, it's, it's powerful. Yeah. But you have to have both sides of that argument. Yeah. What we did at the music office, just by way of an example, is we separated the argument about the music industry in Texas into two arguments. We are very, very pro-cultural impact of the music industry in Texas. Mm -hmm. Very, very pro. Right. George Strait, Selena, you, like all of the people that do a great job of speaking for the industry, do it by creating and touring and being ambassadors for Texas. Right. We're known the world over for that. I think we do a really good job by just letting y'all do that right? And, and waving at it in a very respectful way. What we can do is speak an economic language and separate it and say, all of that that I just described is a reason we ought to protect this thing and make sure it's supported. But did you know that over 100,000 people go to work every day in this industry and create $400 million to our tax base? Wouldn't you like to protect that too? And here's how we do that. Right. So that's the non- Are those real numbers? Real numbers. Yeah, 100%. You know, $3.8 billion in earnings by these people, $400 million to the tax base per our last economics impact study that was released in 19 pre-COVID. And uh, we've done those every biennia uh, to kick off every legislative session so that we can go to- What is that? <clears throat> what does that compare to other small businesses? Of the economic impact? I mean, we're a unique creative industry, so we're not going to stack up against the plumber's trade organization. But who the, do we stack up against as far we're as- kind of, We're kind of in our own niche, I, I'll be honest, because we have the cultural side to it. Right. I don't know exactly where we'd line up. You know, we're not going to be as big as the Texas Restaurant Association's impact, but it shouldn't matter that we're as big or as small as we are. It's that we're an important vertical that does that. Right. If that was pulled out of the economy, our economy, our economy and our general revenue would look different. Right. And so that's an argument they do understand. They're very, very- keen on keeping every single penny into general revenue as humanly possible. You can see right. that every legislative session. Uh, they don't really give tax breaks that much, and uh, they don't carve things out of that revenue. So every penny is important because it right. moves our state forward, and this is a driving part of our economy. And so by making that argument and by separating uh, all of those numbers into House and Senate voting districts, we can tell every single elected in state house exactly why it's important to their voting district house and senate so there's never going to be an argument where someone comes back to me and says well i don't have any of that in my district right they would say that 
But our data would suggest that that's incorrect. And so we can have a conversation with them based on facts. Look at you, man. Getting all, getting all astute politically. I love it. Well, I just think it's it, pretty amazing that the, the learning curve that you had to get on. It was a big learning curve. I appreciate you saying that because it was a very big learning curve. I looked at it simply from uh, the, the vantage that if we don't speak this language, then we're not at the table. We just won't be. Right. If we don't, if we don't, you know, wear coat and tie and go sit in the office and speak that language occasionally then we're not going to be advocating for this industry in any way, shape, or form in a way that they understand. Yeah. So yeah, very steep learning curve. Um, I've been at the office for six years now. I've learned a ton, that being some of the you know things I've learned. But you know, I've learned that people are very receptive when you put things in terms that they understand. You yeah. have to talk down to them. It's just that you're- Well, you're not talking down to me, but the way you're spelling it out is like, oh shit, that doesn't, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I think it does to people once you separate the argument, it tends to get cloudy and you tend to have that sort of anecdotal response that is, oh, well, yeah, Lee Trevino is from my district. I'm like, great. Okay. Lee's fantastic. And uh, I mean, Rick Trevino, I apologize. Lee, Lee, <laughs> Lee's pretty badass. Lee's too. <laughs> pretty great too. I'm sorry. <laughs> so Rick's from my district. Yeah. But there are 60 others as well. Okay. So let's celebrate that. And then let's celebrate all the people that go to work in small business in your in your uh, district that do the same thing. Right. Uh, so yeah, uh, shout out to Lee Trevino <laughs> and Rick. Uh, it's it's been fun to learn the industry that way, and I was really proud. We're the only state that can advocate the way we do and speak to the industry the way we do because of the work we've done the last few years. Uh, RIAA, which is the agency that does a tremendous amount to fight back against piracy and a ton of other things they, that they do. A, part, a fun part of their job is they hand out gold records to people. Mm -hmm. you know, so they're kind of a ubiquitous agency that we don't know all that much about until you get a gold record. That's from them. Right. So they do these studies every year that point out the 50 contributions of 50 states to the music industry as a whole in the United States. And we were the only state that's able to provide our own data to that study. Really? Yeah. So it, it positions us as an expert. And federally, we are known as an expert now. We are right. called upon to speak for the impact that Texas has. And it's got a tremendous impact. Yeah, no kidding. Well, the cultural part has always been there. It's like always been said. there. It's always been there. And everyone knows, anecdotally, if you go sit in the offices in Nashville, you know, like we were talking about before the interview kicked off, the, that you know, Texas and the region that we tour – you know, and that's Oklahoma and add on the other states that you start out, you know, in, in our business here based out of Texas touring. They they know that as a huge live music interactive uh, scene. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's somehow looked at as apart from what they do sometimes. Uh, maybe it shouldn't be always, but it's always been regarded as a very powerful uh, touring economy that's produced some huge stars for a lot of different genres. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So it's fun to go so talk what, about that, but it's fun to also build bridges so that they understand too, you know, that, you know, we do a lot of work there as well. And we kind of need that infrastructure too, to do some breakouts from this, this scene as well. It's pretty amazing to, when you, when you break it down like that, because you're right, it could be thought of as a small industry, but it's almost like if you've been living at, you know, when you're living at home and, and your mom goes away for three weeks when you're a kid and the house falls to shit. <laughs> it's like, you don't really realize what kind of impact just little things like, you know, putting, putting things back where they're, where they're from. It's like, you don't realize what it is until, until it's not happening. Yeah. I, I think that's right. 
I think that's right. Uh, and if it's not pointed out a lot, and if it's not advocated for vigorously, people tend to forget, and I don't blame them for that. There's a lot of big issues. Uh, but this one needs to be put right up there with every other one, every chance we have. So what's been going on in your office during COVID? So, yeah, COVID represented for everybody just a huge pivot point. I know people are sick of hearing that word, uh, that term maybe, but. What, pivot point? Yeah, because, you know, that that's that seems like jargon. But we were doing all of the work I just described and much more right up until things weren't happening in the industry. And we started seeing South by stop, which was for the world you know, a big wake up moment that, oh, wow, in 2020, things are going to look a lot different. Yeah. And so we stopped in our tracks and sort of assessed what we were going to message out to people. Uh, first of all, uh, we changed our website, putting COVID resources right up front as we started to see them. Uh, federal programs, state programs that might start popping up. We left space for those. Uh, but then I called uh, Brian Daniel, who runs the Texas Workforce Commission, who I worked with at uh, Economic Development and Tourism here in the mm -hmm. governor's office. And I said, we really need to carve out as these Fed dollars for unemployment start to filter into the state in the billions, we need to make sure um, that some of those dollars are carved out for mixed earners and 1099 employees, because that is the majority of our people in the music industry who aren't you, you know, who don't own the company. Right. A lot of these folks are going to be furloughed because there's not sustainability for them in the businesses where they work today. We need to make sure that these people are accounted for in this thing. With federal money. Fed money. State money was going to go out at $300 plus, like it did for unemployment mm -hmm. every day, like it would in normal times. But the Fed augmented that by several hundred dollars on top of it. So they, you know, folks could get $700-ish a week uh, while they were unemployed. But initially, that was not carved out for mixed earner or 1099 employees. So how did, you, how did you go about convincing that to, to, work, to, to, ha to happen? Well, like, I, who I do you have to talk to? I tell you, in this case, it was it was sort of a godsend and, and and sort of fortunate because Brian Daniel had been my direct report on economic development tourism for several years before he moved to head of Texas Workforce Commission. I had taken him to Americana Fest. I had taken him to these conferences where we interact and we do panels and we talk about what we just talked about, the economic impact. But he also got to know a lot of people who played, you know, guys like I used to be you know, making all my money from, from playing fiddle or whatever else, he got to meet a lot of these folks. And so when I was describing to him the issue for these people, he could see it. He had personal contact with these people. Right. And so when I called him and said, not for nothing, but this is going to be a problem for our people, the way it's laid out right now. And states were given by the Fed the opportunity to create guidelines that worked for their state and to provide recommendations to the Fed about how they were going to disperse funds. So, so they kind of opened it up, opened it up to be able to manipulate it a little bit. Yeah, because we're, everything was so uh, on the fly at that at that point. It seems like if there's anything that I've noticed that was good about this last year, it besides all the political him and hawing and all that stuff, yeah. that's silly. But the ability for money to get filtered out where it needs to go in a, in a quick manner. It, relatively quick. It's life. It was life saving to people, and that's not hyperbole. It was really life saving to people. It was life saving to my business. Yeah, I to, mean the, to the, businesses the loans and, and, and to people. Uh, and there are some businesses that were able to because cash reserves for a, a period of time keep everyone on staff. But certainly that wouldn't work for everybody. Wouldn't work should for it everybody. Be but I was amazed at how well it did work. <laughs> you know, giving somebody hundred thousand dollar loan to, that if you pay. 
if all that money goes into your business to pay your employees. Yeah, CARES Act money was huge. You don't and have to these pay it back. benefits were huge. Uh, I, I give it a ton of credit. I, I could not give more credit to Brian Daniel and his team who set up a special spreadsheet just for our office to connect names with his people to get people on unemployment that they needed immediately. Uh, because their volume of calls at Texas Workforce Commission went up from, you know, a thousand or so a week to a million a week. And that's almost un unsustainable. Right. But they they built it to, to make it work and they included our people in that. And so very early on, we started that process. And then we started looking at the landscape of relief uh, that was going to emanate from the feds because that was going to be the most effective amount of dollars. Mm -hmm. We knew that the feds were going to be able to spend more than anybody else. And so there were advocacy groups like Neva that were putting themselves together to advocate for real relief funds from the Fed. And so we worked behind the scenes with the Save Our Stages effort quite a bit. Right. Uh, I worked with uh, Edwin Cabanis, who owns Kessler and Heights Theater, uh, to organize a, uh, a group to speak for uh, hundreds of venues in the state. Uh, for the Save Our Stages initiative that passed that Senator Cornyn and uh, Congressman Williams were effective in getting pushed through. Um, what does Save Our Stages do exactly? That created a law called the Shuttered Venues Operators Grant that was passed December 27th of uh, 2020 that uh, empowered the SBA to create a program. I know we're running through a whole bunch of agencies here. The law was passed- <laughs> Alphabet soup. Yeah, $16.5 billion uh, for Shuttered Venue Operators Grant that was to uh, be distributed, to applied for, and to be applied for and distributed by the SBA, the Small Business Administration. They created that program on the fly. It took them several months, some fits and starts, uh, but those shuttered venue operators grants are rolling in now in the millions. And Texas has gotten 600 plus million dollars of that, those funds for, for venues, for theaters. Uh, it's essentially- How does that money get paid back? Or does it not? It doesn't need to be paid back. So that's the thing is it's a, a stopgap to replace what didn't happen in 2020, essentially. So uh, that's a landmark piece of uh, legislation that really is business saving and yeah. life saving in ways. Uh, so I, I really have to give a lot of credit to the folks in Texas who worked really hard on that. Uh, we created a de facto trade organization of music venues that could speak for themselves. That's something we lack in Texas is a dearth that we have a kind of a dearth of, uh, of trade organizations that speak to a lot of different uh, parts of our economy, but we don't have one for the music industry that right. much. Right. Uh, apart from myself, uh, there's a woman named Rebecca Reynolds in town that runs the Music Venue Alliance. And Edwin and his group of um, advisor venues essentially set up the Texas Music Venue Alliance that spoke to us. And I'll back up for a second. Uh, when, when COVID really uh, became an issue in the state in March, um, the governor started ramping up a response to that that was focused on a, um, how do I say this? It was focused on putting the needs of business, large and small, through the advisory group of healthcare professionals he had uh, to create these executive orders that reopened the state. Mm -hmm. uh, he called it the governor's strike force to reopen Texas. Um, there was a huge advisory group of professionals around the state that served on that in an advisory capacity. The day-to-day -day work on that committee was done by five or six folks um, with a uh, an executive director, and all of their recommendations were filtered through the healthcare professionals that had been empowered by the governor. Uh, I was asked to serve on that committee, so I was named head of um, arts, culture, and entertainment mm -hmm. for the strike force for the state. 
which broadened my role and my scope in that I was working with everyone from the Dallas Cowboys and Houston Texans to all of the people who owned aquariums and zoos and axe throwing arenas. And now, what were you doing? I was on the what phone. Was, what was the, uh, on the ground look like? I was on the phone all day, all day, every day, uh, around the clock with them, trying to absorb plans they would send me so that I could create for each vertical of business in my purview, um, a plan that could potentially be written into law as an executive order for them to reopen. To help them, like, so with the Texans. Uh, so pro sports essentially put together a package. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, they advocated for themselves through the governor as well. I mean, this wasn't all through me, but they would put together a uh, recommendation for reopening that would work for them because we don't know their business. They know their business. Uh, we know that. So y'all would take their plan. Take run it, it the through the doctors that sat on these calls every day, twice a day. And we would throw these ideas at them. So the, they'd come back essentially and say. Essentially the, the Texas version of, you know, our Fauci's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A little, just for our state. Yeah. Dr. Hellerstadt from uh, DSHS, Dr. Zerwas. I mean, these people worked incredibly hard. Uh, and they were the advisor, the healthcare advisory group to the strike force. And we would take all these plans, hundreds of plans from all these different types of businesses and submit them. And those would be turned into executive orders. Uh, so restaurants could open at X capacity. Sporting groups could open at this capacity. Aquariums, zoos, music venues, uh, mass gatherings of all types. Uh, so we created all of those uh, protocols that would allow them to reopen if they chose. Right. Uh, so that was an important part of it. That no one was compelling anyone to do anything other than follow the protocols we'd set out if they now, chose if to reopen. You if they cho chose to reopen at a limited capacity or whatever, does that then negate their ability to take federal money? No, uh -uh. it sure didn't. So these folks uh, would, at the time they applied, have to demonstrate their loss. So all of them, none of them, none of them would be able to come back at 100 percent capacity. So they would es essentially submit an accounting statement that would say we lost this much money. We think we're due this much money back. So at this point, is COVID still spiking and it's still an issue? I'm assuming that because of the work y'all did in 20, that, that that's going to look a lot smoother if if we do have to start shutting down and and getting very limited capacities, you know, venues and. Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely let the governor speak for himself on what his plans are for for that strategy. Uh, that's something that's far beyond my pay grade. I just have to say that up front. The groundwork has been laid to respond if something like that would need to happen. Yeah, well, all those, all the all the things that y'all set up are now in place. Yeah, and it was really interesting. I'll, I'll say this: it was a very trying time. It was a very taxing time uh, for for me personally, but uh, for a lot of other people they were going through a lot worse. Uh, it had never before been done. So there was nothing to draw on. You know, there was no right. history. I couldn't read a book. Right. I couldn't say, well, the last time we shut everything down and reopened it, how'd they do it? Where's the roadmap? Well, that was the whole reason for that song we wrote. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how come all these people are telling us what we're supposed to do in times like these? They didn't live through times like these. How no, would nobody even, has. How would they know? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and what do you choose what do you choose day to day to make your life look a certain way? Uh, so were you going into work every day all last year? Like you get somewhere to go or were you working from home? Uh, so the offices were not really fully open back up until kind of summertime. I could go back into the office cause I'm the division head. Uh, and I did occasionally, but I set up a full home office that was spreadsheets everywhere and notes. And it was just really annoying to everyone at the house and how, zoom calls. How many people are in your office? 
a total of four, including myself. Wow. So we're really lean. Um, but to that point, all the guys in the office do about three jobs. I was about to say, do you, do you, is there a way, like, do you have intention for that to grow? I've added one person already. Uh, I'd like to add more. I think the potential that we could, uh, you know, grow and expand would be greatly helped with more. Now, people. how does that work in your world? Like when you say, man, we got four people, we got so much work to do. We're all doing three jobs. How do you go about adding a position in the government? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a part of the learning curve we talked about earlier. You know, it's not a private corporation. It's not right. a company I'm the CEO of. I'm a division head amongst division heads within a very big office. Office of the governor employs a lot of people. Um, and it's got a limited budget. So I've got to go through a series of justifications to get my needs met. And everybody's doing the same thing. At the and same everybody's time. doing the same thing. Yeah. Everyone thinks that with more people and more resources, they can do a better job. And sometimes they're right. Sometimes they aren't. I, uh, when I added Chip Adams to run the Music Friendly Communities program that's going gangbusters now, my justification was this program's going to grow us in a, into a state agency. That's my vision for this. I cannot do it without this FTE. So here's my justification, several pages long, multi-month hiring process, and then we got our guy. So um, you just have to go through the process. <laughs> it really Man, is have you, is, has, has that been tough to learn how to go through the process? Well, here's how my brain works. <laughs> here's exactly now looking back. I was a musician, touring, recording musician guy based out of Texas for a long time. My brain worked one way to do that. When it wasn't time for me to do that anymore, and we started the company that I was a part of for five years, it was a very entrepreneurial go, go, go. What, wait, what was that? It was called Music One Live, and now it's called One Live Media. It was e-commerce, direct-to-fan, uh, global logistics and fulfillment, mm -hmm. essentially. Very, very entrepreneurial way of thinking, very day-to-day, -day, uh, very relationship-managed. And uh, if you need something, go get it. Don't talk to me about it. Just go get it. We have to solve this problem now. Right. Uh, when I was appointed in 15 to come do this role by the governor, uh, all that had to stop and my brain had to work a different way. I'm really lucky to have a guy in our office named Steve Ray who has been there forever. And anytime I would have an idea that seemed outside the box, Steve's really, really great at saying, now because of these laws, you can't do that. And because of these accounting practices we use here, you shouldn't do that. Here's how you should probably proceed. It's going to take longer than you think. And for, you know, for months and maybe a couple of years, that was super frustrating to me. I can imagine. But now I know that most of those, those things are precautions to keep you out of harm's way or to avoid undue scrutiny for something that probably is a good idea. Right. So it's a big learning curve. So, you know, from being, you know, almost sort of a pirate kind of lifestyle out there playing music and doing that to, you know, really entrepreneurial, raise a bunch of money, go make your company work, do it yourself, to here, here are a huge series of constraints you can be successful within if you stay within them. Yeah, you have to learn how to turn yeah. the train. It's a, Yeah, it was a really big uh, learning curve, but that's kind of how my head works now. I can adjust to and adapt to circumstances as long as I know exactly what they are. I can color by number, but... A lot more analytics in this for you personally, for me to personally, analyze what what I'm trying to ask for, how I'm going to get it done. This and it comes it comes to every big question comes to how much capital am I going to expend, whether it's actual capital or political capital, personal capital to get this done. And once I run it through that filter, I'll know if that idea is important or not. Right, because that's a lot to spend. You now, know? can you in in your position, can you go out and get private money? 
I can, actually. We have a foundation set up that can uh, absorb private funds for certain things. We are allowed to uh, absorb private money to do all of our conference activations, anything we do that uh, you know might involve hiring talent or something like that. And we've got some incredible people who back us up there. Uh, Edwin Cabanis has been a huge uh, partner with us. Uh, he and his team are so giving uh, to let us go out and put our logo and name on stuff for minimal dollars. And all of those dollars are provided by the Kane Foundation overseen by Wofford Denius, who is just an unflagging supporter of our office. Wofford Denius. Mm-hmm. You know him? He's an attorney. attorney. Yeah. He's so the first guy I ever called. He's he's just, without Wofford, uh, without Edwin and his team and without Wofford Denius, our and in his foundation, his family's foundation, uh, we would not be able to be as visible as we are right. in all the places that we are. Uh, Didn't so, Keller do some stuff with you guys? Well, that, that's another huge bucket. So part of my job is economic development, which means I'm, uh, I need to be thinking every day about what businesses we need in Texas to augment our infrastructure so we become an industry center and not just a live music economy. Mm-hmm. And so one of our big successes was the expansion of BMI to Texas a couple of years ago, which was a multi-year process to, to achieve. The private sector partner I had on all those deals was Gary Keller through his right. proxy, Nick Shuley, who was with me on all the meetings with Jody Williams and all the higher ups we went through with BMI to get done. Right. And Keller essentially made it possible for us on the private side to help them find real estate, uh, to help them find promotional dollars, to really you know seed their company fast in Austin and in Texas. Uh, none of that came from my office. That all came from uh, the vision that Gary Keller had uh, that I help I helped him sort of craft, but right. he wanted to help, give, and you gave him a way to give it. Yeah, he wanted to figure out. Or, to his credit, when we first had our meeting with myself, Nick, and 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 Gary Keller, you know, I said, you know, part of my vision is creating an industry center. Uh, these companies are going to do it better, and I'm going to do it. In fact, I'll largely be irrelevant once most of them most of them get here and start doing their work. I can't get them here without private sector help. Uh, and they can have conversations with you that I can't have with them. And so, uh, he, he was the one that really heard that. And to his credit, he heard it, listened to it and actually heard it and then went to bat and, and he, he made that happen. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I, I I can't say enough about the private side folks we work with, you know, without their input and without their financial. And what do they get out of it? I think to Gary, his holistic view of building Austin into something better, bigger than it was and more supported than it was, it fell right in line. Yeah. So uh, I will never understand because I will never have his resources exactly what he personally gets out of it because he gives so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he can look around and see that he's made an impact in Austin. And I can't speak to exactly how that makes him feel, but I know he feels like he's doing more than throwing I just meant like was Yeah, I just meant like, is there is there economic... Was there tax breaks or things like that? that- not to me, because I'm not a nonprofit. He gives so much to nonprofits in Austin. You know, right. he's the he's the driving force behind most of those things staying alive and viable. Yeah. Uh, and I think he gets great satisfaction out of that, but that's me talking. Right. Yeah. Well, I know that, you know, he was also funding the All ATX. All ATX leadership. He leadership. Was funding, he's funding to a great extent most of our, you know, more notable, successful nonprofits in Austin. Uh, you know, we know who those are, you know, Ham and Sims and right. Black Fret and others, uh, AMF, Austin Music Foundation, you know, without his giving. How often do you work with them? Quite a bit, actually. Do, uh, do they come for assistance or do you go to 
to them with, I mean, how's that? I've got multi-layered stuff. It's always fun to get a proclamation from the governor when you do an event. We're happy to do those things. Uh, we can give funds from our office to some of those events through the Kane Foundation, if we'd like, uh, to help co-sponsor their things. Um, I speak to groups when they bring leadership groups in. Um, I participate in their events, that sort of thing. Uh, but importantly to me, and hopefully important to them long-term, when I go out to all our music-friendly communities, of, of which there are 26 now, I don't wave the Austin flag necessarily because I'm a, a Texan agency, but I do say, you know, in Austin, they've got a very evolved nonprofit support system for their music industry there. And that's something you should consider. Here they are, Ham, right. Sims, Black Fred, AMF. I would take a serious look at creating something similar to that in your in your town. Go do your work. But I, I do point out the Explain the, the process do. of uh, music-friendly cities. Like, what what is it? How'd that get going? So here's the highlighted problem that I had. My highlighter when I came in in 15. Thank you for listening to part one of a two-part podcast series of episode 11. Next Wednesday, part two premieres. During the second part, Brendan and Jack talk about the good old days of when Brendan and Jack first met back in the mid-90s through Brendan's career playing fiddle with Pat Green and until he got appointed to the governor's office of the Texas music scene. Thank you for listening.